we've got to cultivate this ability to critically think through what happened, when it happened, where it happened, who it happened to, and how bad it was, and then why it happened. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of differing topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. As a leader, do you help your employees feel satisfaction in their work? Or are you just focused on the metrics and KPIs? Do your employees feel like they're doing meaningful work? As a leader, are you keeping your employees aware of what's going on in the business, even if it's not good news? Well, those questions and more will be discussed by my guest, Mr. David Veach. This is David's second time as a guest on my podcast. David's first appearance was on July 20th, 2020, and we discussed getting lean and leadership. Check out that interview when you finish listening to this one. David has had many roles, infantry officer, husband, father, author, student, farmer, grandfather, and teacher. He teaches organizations how to obliviate their obstacles, accelerate innovation, and elevate performance by teaching leaders how to love, learn, and let go. Leaders who apply David lessons achieve higher productivity, higher profitability, and higher professionalism as they build great workplaces. He is passionate and inspiring speaker, whether speaking to large audiences or hosting intimate workshops with small executive teams. He is an expert in leadership and operational excellence. For over 30 years, David has carefully studied leadership and work systems, looking for practical strategies his students or clients can effectively apply. He has taught leadership on the faculty at Stetson University and Lean Six Sigma at the Defense Acquisition University as an officer in the U.S. Army. Since retiring from the military service in 2001, he has served as teaching faculty at the University of Kentucky, Go Cats, and the Ohio State University. He has built two successful consulting firms whose clients include the U.S. Postal Service, Owens Corning, Rolls-Royce, the Arizona Department of Economic Security, and Nationwide Insurance. David has written two best-selling books and is constantly learning and sharing new things. He's an avid orator and a certified cruise consultant with his own travel agency. He's been married to Mary for 35 years, has three adult children, two grandchildren, five dogs, a horse, and a herd of deer that Mary likes to keep fed through the winter. Wow. Before we get to the interview, let's take care of a couple of housekeeping items. 
Please subscribe to and share this podcast episode with a friend. I would greatly appreciate your support. Also, please visit my YouTube channel where you can see this video episode and a number of other past podcast interviews. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Accidental Accountant. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on-site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders, a story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. Would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and certified speaking professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in person and on site at your location or at an off-site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now let's get to the interview with Mr. David Beach. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I have a repeat guest, and my guest today is Mr. Or is it Dr. David Beach? What do you go by, my friend? Mr. Actually, I, I just go by David. So By David. Okay, we'll just call you David. But you are a doctor, correct? I am not. No, no, no. I've, I've worked on a PhD for a little while, and uh, I, had, I had some advice from one very successful consultant who was not a PhD and one very successful consultant who was. Wow. And they both said, well, it's about 50-50. I was like, well, I'm working awful hard for this <laughs> for 50-50. So I think I'll just suspend that for now. Well, I, I guess the reason why I went down the, the doctor path is because I know that you, you were on faculty at my alma mater, University of Kentucky. And I know that you're doing work at the... Ohio State University. Got to say it properly when you're in Columbus, so you'll get shot. So I, I just, I guess, made that assumption. But you spend a lot of time running universities. Then I do. I, I love to teach. That's kind of the the main thing. I spent 20 years in the army trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, and what I found was that I'm pretty good at teaching, and I really enjoy teaching. And so when I retired, the university hired me, uh, and I was a I was a lecturer there, mm -hmm. and taught there for about five years and then the academic environment was about all I could take. <laughs> so we went out, we went out, we started a consulting firm and did that for about seven years. And the, you know, we, we were going this way and I wanted to go this way and I found a reason to go someplace else. And I got this wonderful offer from the Ohio state university uh, after I'd had a relationship with them for a long time. And so they brought me on as a senior lecturer in the college of business. And that was pretty cool. And now I'm a lecturer in the College of Engineering. So 
Yeah, that's how it's just so good. You're doing something with the engineering department, which would fascinates me. Uh, so I, I know this is a little bit off track. I wasn't really planning on going there, but tell me what you're doing with the engineering department at, at Ohio State. Well, a couple of years ago, the College of Engineering contacted the director of the MBOE program. The MBOE is the Master of Business Operational Excellence program. Right. And they were putting together a new master's program uh, that they were calling a master's in engineering management, an MEM program. And they needed some operational excellence content. They wanted a class on operational excellence. And so they asked uh, Peter Ward, who was the director at the time, if somebody could do that. And he asked me if I wanted to do that. And it sounded like a lot of fun, like right up my alley. Mm -hmm. And so I agreed to do it. And then we have all these delays, <laughs> like COVID. Uh, but, but even before COVID, there were several delays that kept pushing this back further and further and further until uh, finally I'm finished with my time in the business school. And I'm like, I, I don't have any employee status at the university for I don't know, almost a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden I get uh, the College of Engineering comes back to life and says, hey, we want this program to run in the spring or in the fall. Um, so can you get it designed? I was like, yeah. Uh, and then executive ed calls and says, you know, we we changed all the rules and the faculty can't spend as much time doing executive ed anymore. So we need somebody to run this program for minority business enterprises. Can you can you do that? And I said, yeah. So I've got some executive ed work going on. I'm designing the course with the instructional designers now that's going to go live in the fall. It's a great experience. I'm learning a ton with that. So, yeah, I'm trying to keep things. I, I like having the association with the university, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm glad I'm not full-time. When I was full-time there, it was okay, but then I can take that for only so long. Like I said, about five years is my limit. About, about five years, yeah. I, uh, I was on faculty at the Ohio Dominican University some years ago, and my uncle at the time, what, he'd been president of Iowa State, Murray State, Clemson, and he was president of the Association for Presidents of Universities. And I asked him, what do I need to know? He goes, Pete, this is it. There's a difference between business and academia. In business, you see the guy or gal with the knife coming at you. In academia, you don't see them. You just feel the knife going in, twisting around. And when you turn around, everybody's sitting there smiling at you. Innocently. Yes. 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 That's so, I, and I did contact him a few years after that. And I said, thank you for that advice. You were, you were dead on. <laughs> That was probably not the right word to use, but yeah, he was on point. So I you on before, talked a lot about leadership, a lot about team building and those attributes and the, the pillars and talking about your book, Leader Sites. And we finished and you said, you know what? Can I come back again and talk about building satisfaction at work? And I went, well, that's not going to sell. Sarcastically. <laughs> of course. I mean, it, you know, we were talking beforehand, you know, whether you're making 20 bucks an hour or $250,000 a year, money doesn't satisfy. How do you no. get, how do you build satisfaction at work? And especially how does a leader help build satisfaction with their team at work? Yes. So help me with the concept, my friend. Well, this is, this is really an integral part of tying your organizational philosophy together, right? So we talked about that foundation piece of dynamic stability last time. How we're trying mm -hmm. to build an organization that is stable enough to learn and develop 
and produce good quality things and develop their people properly and get a great reputation uh, while at the same time being dynamic enough and flexible enough to change as customer needs change. And those were the foundation pieces. The next part really focuses on internally on getting the most out of the employees. And we've had these discussions about why do you want to satisfy an employee on the job? And most people will say, oh, well, because they work harder or they're more productive or they get more out. And of course, none of that is true. So then the question is, if none of that is true, why does it matter? Okay. And for a long time, it hasn't mattered. Okay. It hasn't mattered to businesses because, hey, if it doesn't matter, I'm not going to worry about satisfaction. I'm going to worry about productivity and I'm just going to work people. Right. Okay. And it started with Henry Ford. So Henry Ford in 1908, he made 10,806 Model T's in workshops with a bunch of guys who built the entire car together as a team. They finished it, they'd roll it out of the workshop, they'd start building the next one. They got to see every bit of that car built from the ground up. High skill, high satisfaction. And these guys were pretty quick. But to get the volume that Ford needed, he had to reconfigure everything into the assembly line. Mm -hmm. And when you put the assembly line together, uh, now instead of building the whole car, you get to build one piece, right? You hang wheels all day or you put window cranks on or headlights and that's all you do all day long as the work comes in. And, and he ran into problems because he used his existing workforce to man the line. And you got people going from the satisfaction and skill and value of being able to create the whole car to a guy who stands there all day and hangs one part. And so they started leaving in droves. And there were 253 automakers around at the time, so there were other places to go to work. So Ford decided that the way to stem the exodus was to offer more money to people. And he was uh, very innovative and he offered a $5 a day wage when the going rate was 11 bucks a week. With those 253 automakers, he puts a full page ad in the Detroit Free Press and says, hey, I'm hiring. Naturally, he's going to get a mountain of applications. Mm -hmm. And when you get a mountain of applications for a few jobs, what do you get to do, Peter? Go through all that fun paperwork. And you get to pick the very best, right? Right, right. So you pick the very best, the most talented, the most highly skilled guys, the guys who can all build the whole daggone car by themselves. And what mm -hmm. do you do with them? You hire them to do this job. Just one thing. The next thing I do, yeah, I'm paying all these guys, but now they're making mistakes and everything because they're daydreaming and off wandering. So he invents this management system that starts with the foreman and he gives the foreman a valuable leadership tool that looks like a leather strap that's about 18 inches long. <laughs> and the job of the foreman is to go up and down the line behind everybody working and making sure that they're paying attention. If they're not, whap across the back of the head or across the back, get your attention, get your folks back on work again, and off you go. So you can imagine how long that lasted. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. we're not stu still doing that, but we're still creating these mind-numbing jobs. And it doesn't matter. I mean, Amazon is the perfect example. Thank God Jeff Bezos raised the rate for everybody at Amazon to 15 bucks an hour as the minimum, right? And that's great. So what's going on in Alabama? I mean, those guys are getting $15 an hour, which is a great wage for Alabama. They're getting full benefits. 
they're getting lots of hours to work. They're doing great. What the heck is going on? Why do they need to organize into a union? That's the big question. And so you got to look at the work and you got to look at the leadership. And I do not have firsthand experience working for Amazon. My son did get one of those Christmas jobs a few years back, and he kind of validated some of the things that I'd read about and learned about. Mm-hmm. And of course, in an Amazon fulfillment center, the whole, the whole job is you get truckloads of stuff in from all the manufacturers, and you got to pull it off the truck, and you got to put it on the shelves. And you got to be able to scan the product and scan the location of where you're putting it on the shelf so the computer knows exactly where everything is. Then we get orders from consumers and you got a team of people who has to pick those orders and stuff those boxes and tape the box up, put a label on it and off you go. And they have very high standards for speed. Uh, you have to be able to pick, I don't know, 120 <laughs> items uh, an hour or something like that. And it's, it's very demanding. And the leadership has learned that they've just got to hound the hell out of people to keep them on that pace because their livelihood and their peace of mind will be affected. If your rates are low, they get chewed out by their bosses and they've got this kind of carrot and stick culture that they have created in all these fulfillment centers. And so it doesn't matter that you're paying them well. It doesn't matter that you've got good benefits. If you're treating them like crap because you don't think they're moving fast enough and they feel like they're moving as fast as physically possible, you're going to have some problems. Mm-hmm. So how do we balance that out? I mean, how do we balance the need for speed? Because let's face it, we consumers have created that need for speed. Right. I want my six bottles of champagne in two hours, not two days. Right? right. Right. So we've kind of built this expectation that we get it now. And Amazon has started off, been very successful in delivering that and satisfying that need. But it's, it's almost like they're totally disregarding any need for meaningful, satisfying work on the job. So. It, sounds like, it sounds like Ford all over again, but in today's <laughs> world. I mean, it, it is. And, and we all know Amazon's not the only one that operates at that level, too. But no, but, but there are others, there, there are others who, who create these fantastic work environments. And one of them was Zappos. Yeah. And Zappos shoes. Now, Amazon has swallowed them up. But, but before Amazon swallowed them up, I visited one of their fulfillment centers. And let's face it, the work is the same. <laughs> I'm taking shoes off the truck, putting them on a rack, pulling them off the rack, putting them in a box. It's the same kind of work. But the atmosphere that they created uh, was just completely different. I mean, they they called their employees superheroes. They gave them time to take breaks. They offered free snacks and things at break time. They offered free lunch. They have a great benefits package, including childcare and education. All of that stuff, Tony Shea was paying for. And they were loving it. I mean, I visited the facility. They had a facility in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. We went on a tour there. And you, I mean, the energy in the place was just vibrant. You could feel it. It was tactile, right? And uh, the last visit I made there was right after they had announced that Amazon was going to take over the fulfillment center. And everybody was just dreading that because they knew that the snacks were going to go away. The free lunches were going to go away. The education piece, maybe not so much, but... uh, uh, they were going to be much stricter about 
the time it takes to fill that job. But Peter, you've been to lots and lots of places too. You know that we have crappy jobs everywhere. I mean, just all over the place. They're jobs and and they help, but they're just, like you said, mind numbing. Yeah. And and some jobs are more mind numbing than others, (laughs) but leaders just kind of go into these places and they, well, you know, there's the job is the job. It's the work that you got to do. And that's what you got to, and that's just a cop out. I mean, leaders need to understand that they can actually redesign the work. So if you're going to redesign the work and if they do take that responsibility, which I I hope they do, then you kind of got to know how to change the job to make it satisfying. So what does in fact satisfy employees? And in all the studies on on job satisfaction, they kind of roll down to to three big things. Uh, One is meaningfulness. So people want to do meaningful work. Two is awareness. The more aware they are of what's going on in the organization, the more satisfied people are. Even if it's bad news, if they know what's going on, they report higher levels of satisfaction. And then the third is a feeling of responsibility. So we have, we've taken those and we've known these for almost 80 years. Okay. So we, and we've talked this stuff, uh, but it's in the interpretation that really gets it. So I like to focus on meaningfulness first because that's pretty key. And there are three key elements to meaningful work. Uh, One is the work has to feel like it's significant to the people doing the work. Um, So how do we design work so that people know that what they're doing is important? Okay. And the, the answer is you tie them directly to the customer. So even if I'm working on a small piece, I make sure they know exactly where that small piece fits into the overall product that we're delivering to the customer. And I share that feedback from the customer. So there's a direct connection. I bring customers in for tours to the facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bring customers in to meet with the people in the call center. I bring customers in to have focus groups with my employees. I connect them to the customer so they can really feel like I'm not just doing this mind-numbing work to line the pockets of some invisible owner. I'm actually impacting someone's life. And that's the way we want to feel. So um, significance is is a big deal. Uh, Mm -hmm. I also talk about the need for being an expert in your job. If we convey to people that you know, this is not the kind of job that I can just pull anybody off the street, give you five minutes of orientation and turn you loose. This is a job that requires some knowledge and skill. And I'm willing to invest the time in you to build that skill and build that knowledge. So you will be a more vital team player for us. And what that ends up with is experts find better ways to do things much more so than somebody who's there making minimum wage just to get the, the nickel, right? So if we can build that piece into the design of the work, um, that's, that's pretty important. I got a question. Something just popped into my head. This, this expert idea, making someone feel like an expert, is that the foundation for, I, I've seen a lot, instead of, in, in, you can get a badge, you get these badges. Is that that aspect of having someone feel like that expert getting these badges and certain things as it relates to their job or some type of performance? It is related. The badges and everything and the certificates and the letters behind your name and all that stuff, those are all extrinsic kind of motivators that some people hold great value with and others, eh, not so much. 
right? So if you're the type of person that gets motivated to achieve that next level, it's great to have that series of steps and a reward that goes along with each one of those steps. That's a great way to train and develop people. A lot of people don't give two hoots about the badge, but they want to really understand what's going on. And so you teach them how to do that. And in my operational excellence world, we've got a great tool that helps people become experts in the shortest possible time. And it comes from World War II. And in World War II, when all the boys were going off to fight the war and all the women were going into the factories to make all the stuff that the guys overseas needed, there were people who never worked in a plant before needed to get up to speed to do perfect quality work very quickly. And so the Defense Production Board, the Department of War and the Defense Production Board created this training within industry program that is the most practical manifestation of educational psychology that I have ever seen in my life. Um, because it's, it's watch me do it. Then I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to step-by-step show you how I do it. And then I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to let you do it at full speed. Then you're going to walk me through it. And then you're going to do it again. And then we're going to bring somebody else in that you can teach. And you teach them how to do it. You, they watch you. And, and so this, there's like 12 repetitions of work that has to be done in this, this repeating cycle. And when you're done, people are like, hey, I got this. I can figure this out. But they're also tuned into finding ways to make it better. Now, this is the way we want to do it. And I don't want everybody just to do it any way, all they, any old way they want to. But if you've got an idea about how to make it better, you've got to share that with us and we've got to test it. And if it is, in fact, a better idea, then we'll teach everybody how to do it the new way. Okay. Those ideas only come from satisfied workers. Right. If somebody's dissatisfied, pissed off at you at work, they're not going to tell you how to make it better. They're just going to find ways to screw it up. Right. And so that's the real importance of focusing on satisfaction at work. But okay. so meaningfulness starts with significance that comes with expertise and a connection to the customer. Okay. There's also variety. Peter, you don't get to do the same thing every two days in a row, do you? Oh, I mean, it would explode. Exactly. So everybody is kind of like that. We need a little variety at work. Um, so instead of having to go in and just stuff boxes for eight hours a day, there's why don't you stuff boxes for a couple of hours and then put boxes away for a couple of hours and then go work on a problem someplace for a couple of hours and then maybe come back and stuff some more boxes for now, a couple of hours. If we can get into this rotating scheme where people get to use different parts of their brain and different parts of their body to do different types of work, that has led to great, much higher reports of satisfaction. So meaningfulness comes from significance, variety, and then the third piece for meaningfulness is a strong sense of identity. And we get identity from a lot of places. Individually, it's our our name and who we decide that we are. You know, am I just a box packer at Amazon or am I a vital superhero contributing to this success of the company? And I'm doing the same work. But just it just sounds so different, so much better. So we get identity from the brand, and a good strong brand leads to some levels of satisfaction. Like if you're uh, if you work at Harley Davidson, you've got this. There's this cool factor to who you are, and Rolls Royce, those kinds of things. So the the company name is a good strong brand, but it's the environment that we create through teams mm-hmm. and making people feel like they belong to something that's really pretty critical 
to the success of the company uh, that's bigger than themselves, that is a huge factor in contributing to meaningfulness as well. well would, you, would you say, you know, identity to a brand? I, I, my mind just went immediately to one of my favorite companies here in Columbus, Ohio, who I've gotten to know very well 15, over 15 years. White like Castle. Donuts? No, White Castle. I mean, it's it's amazing to me the culture of what they have created within that organization and the ability to be open to Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Yeah, I mean that is they're one of my favorite companies out there that that meets this criteria that you're laying out. It just boom, there you go. But I, I had to share that. So excellent, thank you, thank you. Uh, let's see, where was I? I was meaningfulness, and then so I said the, the three big pieces again: meaningfulness, awareness, and responsibility. To get meaningfulness, we got to design work for significance, variety, and identity. The next piece is awareness. People need to be aware of two key things. That's it, just two key things. They need to know what you expect of them, mm -hmm. and they need to know whether they're meeting your expectations. So yeah. it's what's the standard, and then what's the status? So what are the expectations, and give me some feedback. So people thrive on that. So uh, one of the solutions I've found is very effective is, is you put information boards all over the place. And a lot of people like to run these electronic information boards that just have kind of scores of productivity and how many boxes we've stuffed, how many cars we've made, how many insurance policies we've issued, whatever it is. And so they've got these kind of scoreboards, but I'm, I'm more of a, an old school kind of guy. I want to see a physical board in the workplace that people can huddle around in the morning. So at the beginning of the, the day, you get in there and you huddle around this team information board. And one of the team members is responsible for being the team leader for that week, right? Mm -hmm. And they take everybody through this standard agenda on covering people, quality, service, safety, delivery, productivity, cost, whatever metrics you have on the board you kind of do a quick review of, of what you did yesterday and what's the goal for today, what's our target for today, what kind of expected problems are today, and then it's ready, break, and go do the, do the work. Okay. Now, what you do with that is not only are you making them more aware of what's going on, but you're really strengthening that team structure and the relationships in that team, and you're really working on the identity piece that goes in the meaningfulness bucket. Okay. So, critical thing. Make it put a board up, have teams huddle every morning. What are the goals? What are the problems? Let's get going. And don't forget to celebrate. So you, you see this as a daily thing, not a Monday morning thing. Okay, it's Monday morning. We're going to have our huddle. We're going to talk about the week. Break. I'll see you next Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Too many leaders are like, oh, well, I don't really have anything to cover. Like, what, do you work every day? <laughs> if you work every day, you got something to cover. You just got to figure out what's going to be meaningful to the people doing the work. And so many of our corporate KPIs, our corporate metrics, yeah. are all like pie in the sky stuff. If I'm down in the trenches, I don't care what the EBITDA is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to see that. Right, right. I need to see, I'm supposed to make 14 new policies today. Mm -hmm. And it's noon, I've been here half the day, I got six done already, so maybe I can help somebody out this afternoon. And, and we want them to know it's got to be really meaningful to them. And, and the only way to really figure out what's meaningful to them is to ask them. It doesn't matter what you want to measure, leader. What matters, I mean, you're trying to drive behavior. So 
you got to have them come up with what you're measuring. And then it's your job to kind of tie it back through to get to those corporate measures. And mm -hmm. if you've done a good job with your, your strategic planning and your, your cascading of your goals, that, and if, if you're not very good at this, then give me a call. That's what I do. Okay? <laughs> I'll be happy to help and we'll build this right into your work structure. Well, isn't, isn't another word for that uh, servant leadership that it's not about me as the leader, it's about me as the leader helping you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And servant leadership is like the core of my, my leader sites, integral leadership model. And that's where we get this whole decision that the key decision you have to make if you're going to be a servant leader is, is you've got to decide to love the people you're working with. Right. And that just means I'm going to make the deliberate decision to put your needs above mine. And, Isn't and that what a leader's supposed to do? Anyhow. It is. It is. <laughs> Why but, is it so foreign to them? But we don't teach them that very consistently, uh, especially when the only leadership development they get in the workplace is watching the way their boss behaves. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, this is particularly bad in the government because I, I would say that easily 90% of the leaders in government agencies across the board have never had any formal leadership training. They've gotten the job because they needed a, to get a pay raise and they needed to get promoted. And the only way they could do that is to put them in a supervisor role. And they somehow survived by watching the way that their managers led and they did the same things. And so they repeated those bad behaviors that they get results mm -hmm. and the results are the only thing that seem to matter if you get promoted or not. And even though we've been talking about this and yeah. I mean, there are literally thousands of leadership development programs available within the government, but they don't make them available. I mean, not everybody gets a chance to go. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we've got some opportunities. So. You just described the uh, part of the accounting profession, by the way. <laughs> It's almost like we're trying to promote you to your level of incompetence, the old Peter principle, that you're technically sound, but you're not in the role of being technically sound. You're in the role of managing people, and there's yeah. no skill sets that have been taught to them to do that. So, yeah. Well, we see it, we see it in a lot of places, and, and I, I try very hard to, to rectify that. I've built leadership learning programs that are very people-friendly, that I've had entire organizations go through to get everybody on the same sheet of music and they come out and it changes the culture. It changes the culture when everybody gets the same stuff. It, it's incredible. Um, so the potential is, is endless, but that brings us to the, the last point for satisfying. Okay. And that is responsibility. Now, Peter in accounting, how do we typically give somebody more responsibility? promote them, give them more work, take on new clients. Yeah, and, and it usually means I'm going to have to do more work. <laughs> and so the response is typically, I don't really want that. Right. right. So I don't want more responsibility if it's going to mean just more work or if I got to deal with all those crazy people. Right. I don't want to deal with people. I just want to do my thing. Right. But focused studies have found that if we increase the feeling of responsibility without increasing the burden disproportionately, people okay. report higher levels of satisfaction. And it's all back to the design of the work. If you are responsible for doing quality work and you're held accountable to that, people respond positively 
to being held accountable to something that they know is going to be important. If you hold them accountable to stuff that's not important, maybe that's not, not, not doing the trick. But what we've got to be able to do as leaders then to increase these feelings of responsibility is one, tie it to the customer again, just like we did with the significance piece. But let's bring them in. When there's a problem, let's bring them in to help us solve it. Now, another problem that I see is leaders are expected by someone to be the problem solvers. So if you have a problem at work, you tell your boss and your boss says, okay, Peter, do this. Problem solved, right? Even though you know, you know, I tried that and it didn't work. That's not going to work this time around. Am I going to tell that to my boss? Am I going to say you're wrong, boss? Not typically because, you know, he's got the leather strap or figuratively <laughs> yeah. or, or not. Yeah. Um, so we're afraid to tell our leaders that that solution is not going to work. And uh, the leaders are afraid to pull people in to help them solve the problem because they don't want to look like they don't have the answer. So these are not real simple little black and white issues, but they're all kind of interrelated pieces in this complex system that an organization is. But if we start teaching all of our leaders that this is the expectation and the only way to develop people is really to bring them in to solving problems. And if people know that they're going to be brought in to help solve problems and people are listened to and they feel like you're listening to them, then they're going to give you more ideas. They're going to report more problems and they're going to report more ideas. But the idea of reporting problems terrifies a lot of people. But I want to be able to see every problem that people are having at work so we can find the resources to solve it. I might not be able to solve it like that, but I need people to tell me what it is because I, I just can't see it. I'm not out there enough. I don't know what they're going through. I have to have a channel for them to tell me where the problems are. And so if I'm the kind of leader that says, hey, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions, then you're the problem. So we got to encourage people to bring the problems. And then we've got to create time to allow people to solve those problems. You said something there that, that struck me. Yes, bring me, bring me your problems and a solution. Don't, don't think, just because I'm the leader, don't tell me the problem. And have me solve it. I got my butt chewed out big time once by doing that by my boss of Victoria's Secret. I had a huge error. I had a huge problem. I came in. I told her about it. I was expecting her to go all Tasmanian devil on me. She didn't, which freaked me out. And then she said, what's your solution? And man, she went Tasmanian devil on me. But, but, she, <laughs> but, she, said, but she said this one thing to me that has stuck to me for years. Pete. I expect that you're going to make mistakes because you're a human being. I'm a human being. Somebody called me a human being. Not a However, robot. I'm not a robot. However, I expect you to come in here with a solution to that problem. That one screw up of mine taught me, and, and, and that conversation I had with Roxanne Alfayez that day changed my mindset. And now I, I, when I work with leaders, I tell them, have them bring your problems, but Come in with the solution. It's not going to be right, but it starts a conversation. Well, I want you to, uh, I want to take it to a, a, another level, Peter. Okay. Um, I want to hear the problem before you've had a chance to figure out what to do about it. Now, in a lot of cases, you make a mistake. There's going to be an immediate action that you can take that mm -hmm. I expect you to take. So when you tell me about the problem, I want to hear, well, what'd you do about it right away? Okay, so I did this. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's your short-term countermeasure. 
Then I want to have a discussion with you. Like, what do you think caused this problem? Oh, well, I just made a mistake. Well, no, maybe not. Right. What caused you to make that mistake? Is there some procedural step that isn't clear or that we've skipped over? Or is there some physical barrier to the continuing um, success of this? So if we're going to develop the brain capacity of our people, we've got to cultivate this ability to critically think through what happened, when it happened, where it happened, who it happened to, and how bad it was, and then why it happened. And then when we get to the solution part, I want to hear what you did about it for the short term, but then I want you to come up with five different ways to solve the problem. And if you can come up with five different ways, sometimes that's going to make you think a little bit differently, maybe a little bit sideways. And you might come up with something that none of us have ever thought about before. But I've got to be able to ask the questions. If I don't have a relationship that allows you to come to me with a problem that you haven't figured out yet, then uh, we'll never, we'll start just hiding those problems like we've done very well for years. You remember the, the Lucy video with the, the chocolate? Oh, yeah, chocolate. Love that one. She put chocolates down her blouse and her hat everywhere else yep. except showing the boss what was going on. Right. And then, of course, the boss has bad information and then makes a bad decision. Right. Speed it up a little. Right. Last thing they needed. Right. So. Well, ultimately, what Roxanne did is have me go and think about what happened. Gave me like an hour. She goes, I want you to come back with, figure out what happened and come back with a potential solution. And then we'll have a discussion from that. She sounds like an excellent boss. Uh, by far, I think she's way up before her time in, in that concept. Because I've, I've never had anybody else tell me that I'm human. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's bizarre. Because we all are, but we forget that. Well, uh, the one thing that we can consistently do is make mistakes. Yeah. So one of the things we've got to focus on in the design of work is, is there a way to design the work to minimize the possibility of a mistake without having to turn somebody into a robot? If you can design work that doesn't require any thinking at all, then I don't want people doing it. I want a robot to do it. I want to put a piece of equipment in there to do it. Then they can, I can abuse the hell out of a robot. Mm -hmm. I can call them names. I can talk <laughs> about their families. I can really dog them out. It doesn't matter to the robot. I can't do that to people. So I got to get people involved in this discussion. Absolutely. I mean, this, this, is, this has been a great conversation. Uh, you know, the thing is, everything always sounds so easy, but this is very hard to do. It is. Consistently. And I guess, you know, the tone always starts at the top. It does. It does. And to get that buy-in from this is the way that I've learned it because I've witnessed it. This is how I got to this role to a completely different thought process and how leadership should be done. Yeah. And then you've got the, uh, I, you might agree with me, this might not, but there's a lot of ego up in that office. Huge. And are they willing to take that ego and go, okay, I will actually Put it aside and actually listen to what you're trying to tell me. Well, and you're back to the servant leader mentality there. Bingo. Even Bingo. if I do have the answer, I still am obligated to help you find the answer for yourself because my answer, my answer could be wrong. 
just because it worked for me 14 years ago mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's going to work today. Right. Yeah. Because this, this landscape of business and leadership has transformed itself dramatically from the 80s, 90s, 2000s into what it is today. And it, but there's still pockets of that old leadership style. You know, I, I used to hear oh, you know, those millennials, they, they, they don't like to work or they, they come and they leave. Well, they come and they leave because you're running a, a, an organization that looks like 1980. And that's not the way they work. And by the way, I right. used to say, how many of you have millennial children? Then you're yeah. the problem because that's how we've raised them. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody with it. Well, but they want to know why they're doing something, right? Right, right. And they are not afraid to point out when you're having them do something stupid. And we need to listen. Okay, maybe that is stupid. Why are we doing it that way? Right. Let's find a better way to do it. Okay, one last story I, I thought of. There's a, I was in Minnesota up there working with a group of CPAs. And at the break, this manager, this guy came up to me and said, I'm a manager in an accounting firm. And when I shared the story with him, he said, one of the partners came to my office and dropped something on my desk and said, this is how I want you to do it. As the partner was turning, the manager said, you know what? I think I got a better way of doing this. And the partner stopped, looked at it, okay, humor me. He was right. He did have a better way. But then he took it to, then as the partner was walking, I said, by the way, I would run this from completely different than the way you guys are running it. The partner stopped, thought about it for a moment, said, tell me how you would run your firm. And the guy said, you get 10 partners killing themselves. I'd find five more partners. Spread the work out. You can all talk about work-life balance. You're killing yourself. Yes, you're going to take a little bit, little bit less home, but you can have more free time. And then told a few other things. He took the partner, took that back to the partnership, and ultimately, over a year later, they began to redesign that firm. More as this guy was describing, and I said, "Oh my God, that is am- that is amazing that they actually listened and applied." It's amazing that he had the courage to yeah. point it out. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what gives somebody that courage and confidence? We can talk about that next time. Okay, well, courage, courage and confidence in the next episode of Leader Sites well, by David Beach. I can tell you, these guys, um, uh, you said it was difficult, and it, and it really is difficult. And leaders are under a lot of pressure to perform and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you've really got to find a coach. You've got to find somebody you can trust that you can bounce these ideas off of. Somebody who can come in and who can watch you do your thing and then sit down with you and say, well, I saw you do this. I saw you do this. Could you explain those things? And why are you doing it? What do you expect to get out of that? So get a coach. Get a coach. Absolutely. We all, we all have coaches. And but then a lot of people don't, but they should hire a coach. Because another set of eyes outside of the organization can do a lot of good in developing one's career. I'll leave my number and my email address. (laughs) (laughs) David, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's It's a pleasure having this conversation with you. Very interesting. And it was a blast. I, I, I love what I do with this stuff because I get to talk to people like you and you get to stretch, you know, like a coach, you get to stretch for different directions, make me think differently than me just sitting in my basement working until I get to go out and, and interact with, with everybody. So thank you so very much. And I hope to see you soon in person. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. In person. And we can sip some of that Kentucky brown water that we both uh, so much enjoy. I am in, my friend. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank David for his time and his stories about how organizations can help employees find satisfaction 
in the work. When we find satisfaction in our work, the organization grows to newer heights. I will conclude with an improv quote that's fitting for this interview, and I've used this one before. No one will ever follow you down the street if you're carrying a banner that says, Onward towards mediocrity. Stay positive, test negative, and be safe. Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.